Thanks, Jordan. Good morning, everybody. If I was a betting man, I would have been out some money this morning. I didn't expect to see so many of you here <laughs> on uh, this early. What an honor to preach at the beginning of March break and at the beginning of late daylight savings. From what I understand, they saved that for the best, uh, the top preachers in the land. So uh, here we are. Anyhow, um, how do we start? Let me start by telling you about my brother. I have a brother who is a year and a half older than me. And uh, growing up, he was better than me in everything. He was faster and stronger, tougher. He was meaner than me, and he was smarter than me. Like most brothers, many of our disagreements were uh, solved by, with the use of force, with the use of fists, which often ended up with him punching me, choking me, kicking me, or sitting on my head. I was always the loser. You're getting the picture, right? I'm the victim here, right? Until one fateful day in 1989, I was 14, maybe 15, early in the year. I was sitting in our living room playing a video game called Shinobi. Does anybody here know that game? Hey, we got some Shinobi fans. Nice. Shinobi was a tough game. It was on my Sega Master System, but it was a tough game, and it caused a lot of frustration because it's not like these games now where you could save your progress. If you lost your lives, you had to go all the way back to the beginning and start again. And so that was the case with Shinobi. And so on this particular day, I was sitting and I was hitting this level and I couldn't get past it. And my brother came in and seeking, you know, the opportunity here to kind of get under my skin, starts making little comments, little noises. Uh-oh, maybe you should stop, you know, all this kind of stuff. Just little by little trying to needle, needle his way under my skin. And after a few minutes, I had enough. <laughs> and in my mind, what happens next kind of happened just like Bruce Lee. You know, it was a very fluid thing. I threw my controller down. I turned around. I grabbed him by the ankles. He was sitting in this easy rocker chair type of thing. I grabbed him by the ankles, and I threw him back, and the whole chair went on its back. Then I jumped on top of him, and I just started pounding him in the ribs, in the stomach, wherever I could land him, right? And after a few minutes, well, it felt like a few minutes to me. After a little while, I started to feel pretty good. I'm realizing, listen, I'm the champ here. I'm finally beating this guy. I'm finally beating my bully. You know, and as I'm doing it, he starts making his little comments. You know, he says things like, oh man, can't you take a little joke, Nathan? Oh, then he took another one in the ribs from me, right? Then he's like, you know, Nathan, you're, you're, uh, you need to grow up. And then he said this, okay, Nathan, this is really mature. This wasn't the first time my brother Mark had called me immature or referred, insinuated that I was. But for some reason, it stuck with me that day. And uh, suddenly, I didn't feel so good about beating him up. <laughs> By the way, his version of the story is slightly different. But he, <laughs> uh, Hopefully, you never meet him. But uh, I did confer with him the other day, and he says that I won. And he did agree with this fact. That was the last fight that we ever had. Well, serious fight we ever had. We did wrestle other times. But... Um, that was the last fight, and after that, what started was, you know, the mental games, or the psychological warfare. And as you can tell by my feeble mind in this story, I was going to be the loser again, right? Um, but that kind of got, got me thinking, and as often as I thought about that question, what does it mean to be mature? What does a mature person act like or look like? And they certainly don't use force, you know, to solve their problems like I did. They certainly don't get you know, let their tempers fly over 
things like video games or their brother bothering them a little bit. They tend to have control over their emotions. They're even-keeled, responsible, reasonable, wise. They offer key insights, right? And they think before they speak. What a concept. And all of these are great qualities uh, that we can have, right? They're all true qualities. But we can have all those qualities and still not be truly mature. The truly mature person has has a spiritual element. True maturity has a spiritual component. So today we're going to look at that in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 to 17, where Paul addresses the problem of immaturity in the church there. And he gives us some essential elements of what it means to be a spiritually mature Christian. So what do we know about the Corinthian church? Well, Corinth was a commercial city in the Mediterranean, diverse in cultures, diverse in religions, much like uh, modern city like Toronto, New York, London, etc., etc., we know from Acts 18 that Paul had invested quite a bit of time there. He had been there for 18 months. And then after he left, Apollos had been sent to follow up with his work. But it's still, in spite of all that teaching, it was still uh, a church that had really, really big issues. There was sexual immorality there, you know, divisions and prefer- preferential treatment for some. There were lawsuits between believers, drunkenness at the Lord's table, some really bad theology, and that's just to name a few, right? This was not a church that you would recommend to your friend. <laughs> and so Paul doesn't waste any time as he jumps into the book in chapters 1 and 2. After a brief welcome, he starts dealing with divisions in the church and the people boasting in their own wisdom, which leads into this discussion of foolishness and wisdom. And then in chapter 3, he starts into it again. You can read along with me at uh, chapter 3 now. But brothers, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each of the one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. 
For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. So as we read this, once again, we can see clearly that Paul is confronting immaturity in the Corinthian church. And as he begins, he doesn't hold any punches. You can almost hear his frustration and exasperation in his tone. It might seem a bit confusing as you read that first line. as He addresses them as brothers, but also says, I couldn't address you as spiritual people because they are still of the flesh. They were Christians, but he was, supposed, he was forced to speak to them as if they weren't, because they weren't behaving as if they were. For Paul, the existence of quarrels and jealousy in their midst was evidence of this. They were acting as mere humans and natural people who couldn't discern spiritual truth. They were spiritual babies who could only take the milk. Right? They were unable to eat solid food. Understand here that the milk, Paul's not disparaging milk, <laughs> okay? The, those are the basics of our faith that he had taught them. But he wanted them to grow. He wanted more for them. He wanted to teach them more. And their immaturity was keeping them from growing in Christ. And Paul's frustrated because they didn't have any excuse. He had stayed with them, instructing them and teaching them for 18 months. And then they had been followed up with a competent teacher in Apollos. Their maturity wasn't due to a lack of instruction or discipleship. They had, plenty of, uh, they had been given plenty, and they actually thought they were pretty wise, they were pretty mature. To the point, actually, they had abandoned some of Paul's teachings. In chapter 15, we find out that they were embracing a teaching that denied the resurrection of the dead. A teaching that so obviously undermines the gospel that Paul had uh, preached to them. See, they had lost sight of the truth, and the result was they weren't living up to their potential. They had all these issues, and they, weren't, they were missing out on what God had prepared for them. And that's why maturity matters. Throughout the New Testament, we see this emphasis on spiritual growth. It's everywhere, right? We are saved. We're not saved just to remain where we are. In the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, we hear about these different soils and how the plants grow and don't grow. But he says this, the seed that falls on good soil will produce the grain up to a hundredfold. Christians are expected to bear fruit. We're expected to grow. So as North American Christians today, who could rightly be defined as spiritually overfed, <laughs> we should take heed of this passage. We have not been saved to remain stagnant. God's desire is for us to grow, to mature, and to become more like him. This will bring glory to him. It will draw others to him. It will benefit people around us, and it will benefit our own lives. So if you hear nothing else today, I want you to hear this. No matter where you are in your Christian walk, there's always room to grow. So as Paul works through a few analogies in the rest of this passage, I think he's going to touch on some essential elements of Christian maturity that we should listen to. The first one is this. A mature Christian has a realistic view of themselves and others. Let's take a look at verses 5 to 9 here, as I take a drink of water. <laughs> at the core of the division here in the church was this issue of, you know, people saying, I follow Apollos, I follow Paul, these preferences for leaders. And in verse 5, Paul addresses this issue, suggesting that Apollos and he are only servants with different functions but the glory ultimately goes to God. 
Notice the intentional use of the word what here. He says, what is Paul? What is Apollos? He doesn't use the word who, right? He is emphasizing their function over their personality. They were co-workers with different jobs, right? One planted, one watered, but they were working toward the same goal, and that's what mattered, right? It was God who made things grow. Neither of them are anything. So Paul is recognizing the power of God and giving all the glory to him. This doesn't mean that God won't work through our personalities. We see that all the time, how God uses people. He certainly used Paul. Paul was a focused and driven guy, and he used that personality to spread the gospel around the world. But there is a warning in here about putting people on pedestals. There's a warning here about uh, falling into a cult of personality. In our appreciation of a person's gifts and their contribution to the kingdom of God, we must be careful to avoid exaggeration, exaggerated devotion to them or fandom, right? Always keeping in mind the one that empowers their work. There is absolutely no room in the church for hero worship. None. We are servants of the one Christ, and he should get the glory. In these verses, Paul demonstrates what it is to have a realistic view of yourself and others around you. Ultimately, he is showing them the importance of, what, of adopting an attitude or a posture of humility as a key element of what it means to be a mature Christian. Of course, Christ is the best example of humility. In Philippians 2, it says, He made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, humbling himself, and becoming obedient to death. And he did that for our sakes. He did that for, our, for the mission. On the other side of the equation, uh, the equation is pride, and C.S. Lewis describes it as this, the complete anti-God state of mind and the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Pride certainly was a cause of misery and discord in the Christian church, in the Corinthian church, and in the Christian church. <laughs> and in this passage, we see that Paul is encouraging humility, them to follow humility, to adopt humility as a way to solve that issue. To make this a little more personal, I'd add this. The standards that we use to evaluate other people are indicative of how we evaluate ourselves. If we revere others too highly based on their skills or their abilities, we're probably going to judge ourselves based on those same standards. The result is that we either think too highly of ourselves, as if the church depends on us. We'll say things like, no one can ever teach or lead like me. Actually, we'll never say it, we'll just think it. <laughs> or this ministry would fall apart if I wasn't here. On the other hand, we can think too little of ourselves because we feel like we don't measure up, and we end up robbing the church of our gifts. Say things like, I could never sing like her, so I'm not going to try. Or I don't have any special skills to offer, so I'm just going to sit here. <laughs> Neither of those two extreme attitudes is healthy. Of course, this is problematic theologically because we know that God gives us gifts that he wants us to use. Right? All the gifts that he gives have value and are significant. And in uh, uh, chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about spiritual gifts, and then he talks about one body, many parts. Right? We are working together towards a goal. And we know that God often uses unexpected people to accomplish his purposes. It happens throughout Scripture. 
And then 1 Corinthians 1.27, it says, He chose the foolish to shame the wise, the weak to shame the strong. The healthy way to look at all this is to have a realistic view of ourselves and then to recognize the power of God working through us. A mature Christian knows this and can walk in true freedom, accepting the assignment they've been given, not comparing themselves, but trusting that they have been gifted and empowered by God to serve Him. It's a good practice to regularly examine our hearts. Maybe ask questions like this, what's motivating me to serve? How much do I need recognition for the things I'm doing? Am I using my gifts faithfully? As we do this, let's agree to pursue excellence in our ministries and in our love for others. Let's agree to stop worrying about being recognized and let's humbly rest in his love and strive to serve him and others and to bring glory to him. That's maturity. So humility is the first point that Paul's making. Humility is essential for maturity. But we can't make ourselves humble just by trying. <laughs> and more elbow grease isn't going to do that. Humility comes as we build ourselves, our lives on the right foundation. Which brings us to our second point. A mature Christian has Christ as the foundation of their life. Look at verses 10 and 11 here. Second drink. <laughs> Paul reiterates that it's God's work. He says, By the grace given me, I came and laid a foundation, and someone else is building on it. He refers to himself as a skilled master builder who laid the foundation of Christ. The word foundation here means, you know, beginnings, first principles, you know, basics. And in 1 Corinthians 2.2, Paul explains this. He says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the basics. That's what he wanted to leave with them. The first principles of Christ include many things. Things like this, that God, he is God incarnate, that he led a perfect life. All his insightful teaching, his amazing miracles, the demonstration of his power, of God's power in his death and resurrection, right? his power to save. That's just to name a few. As Paul continues, he says, take care how you build, because no one can lay a foundation other than that which, which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. The takeaway for the Corinthians and for us is that every Christian and every church should rest upon Christ alone. There is nothing else that can hold you up. Building our lives on him is the best thing that we can do. Someone wants to grow and mature, they need a solid foundation. Otherwise, everything starts to collapse. I think we can learn something from the Leaning Tower of Pisa on this. Uh, uh, Leaning Tower of Pisa, there's a nice picture of it. Um, began building in 1173. It took over 200 years to complete started sinking in the clay ground around it within the first five years. Little by little over the years, it, it sunk. It stands 55 meters tall. And even after a recent work to correct its lean, it is still four degrees off, which results in a four-meter difference at the top, or 12 to 14 feet, feet difference at the top. And it's still sinking to this day, little by little, millimeters a year. And so there's a few things I think we can take from this. The builders didn't intend for this to happen. <laughs> they were skilled builders. Right? They knew what they were doing. And that's evidenced by the beauty of the craftsmanship on that building. Right? They just had a bad foundation. They built it on clay. 
Second thing is that being off by a small degree can have devastating effects in the long run. And the third thing is that this is a gradual process. It doesn't happen overnight. And it may not be evident to us at first. Lesson for the church, if we, if we build on the wrong foundation, it doesn't matter how excellent we are at everything else, our preaching, our worship, our programs, excellence only matters when it emanates from Christ as the foundation. In 2016, uh, CBC, the show The National, ran an interview with a, one of the uh, United Church of Canada ministers who was being defrocked because she had come out as an atheist. And uh, in her defense, she said that 50% of all uh, United Church ministers are atheists. And then she said that I'm a product of the United Church of Canada. How can you kick me out? She had grown up through the church. That's an example of how things get off little by little. You have a bad foundation, things start to, start to go sideways. And we can avoid this fate by leaning on the foundation of Christ. I used to like watching this PBS show called This Old House. Has anybody seen This Old House before? Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a bunch of New England contractors who restore like 100 to 200-year-old homes. And uh, I thought they should be experts about foundations because they were always fixing them. So I went to their website and found this quote about foundations. It says this, A proper foundation does more than just hold a house above ground. It also keeps out moisture, insulates against the cold, and resists movement of the earth around it. Oh, and one more thing. It should last forever. <laughs> I love this quote because it sounds like Christ to me. Right? Three things a foundation does. It holds, it, up. it holds up the building. Everything depends on the foundation, right? Just like Jesus. Number two, it protects from the elements and resists the movement of the ground around it. There are so many ways we can get things wrong if we're not careful. There's so many things that we might be tempted to substitute for Christ as the foundation of our lives. You know, money, power, influence, acceptance by the world, among many other things. The strong foundation of Christ helps us to resist that temptation. And number three, it lasts forever. It is unchanging. It is sure. No matter what happens, you can trust it. It'll be there. It's the anchor, the rock. It's the cornerstone. It certainly sounds like Jesus to me. So as we set him as the foundation of our lives, our priorities will change. The third point, a mature Christian sets their, their priorities with eternity in view. Let's look at verses 12 to 15. So Paul reminds the Corinthians in these verses that they need to take care to build on, upon the foundation because God will ultimately hold them accountable. He refers to the day when things will be disclosed or revealed, when God will judge the quality of the work. Right? They will be tested by fire. The person who builds with things that survive, he says, will be rewarded, but the person who builds with perishable things will suffer loss, yet they will be saved as through fire. It should be noted here that Paul is talking to believers. And then they have a choice to make. Essentially, this is all about priorities. Paul is saying that the wise believer who wants to pursue God fully will have his heart aligned with the foundation of Christ, 
and will therefore choose to build with things that last. The other will escape final judgment, but will suffer some loss. We want to be people who, who serve God with all our hearts, wholeheartedly. We don't want to be saved by the skin of our teeth, which is what that's referring to. And so we need to decide, you know, what, how we're going to prioritize our lives. What are these building materials that don't perish? You know, what does he mean by, you know, what are eternal investments, things that last? The text tells us that we need to uphold the teachings of Jesus and his gospel. So that's the basics. We're upholding what Paul had taught them. That's what he's referring to and telling them, stay true to the, to the things I taught you. But the reason that's important is because it ultimately transfers to people, right? So to me, in my mind, people are the uh, eternal investment. Souls are the internal investment. So as we preach Christ's gospel, we also want to make sure that we follow his example. Jesus spent lots of time with people, even when it wasn't convenient. Right? He was present with them when he was with them. He taught them, he mentored them, he championed the weak, and he gave his life for all. We also want to heed the words of James 1.27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. We, also, we certainly want to seek to serve the marginalized in our society. And we want to pursue purity in our lives for sure. Those are eternal goals too. And finally, we can't ignore the Great Commission that Jesus gives in Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's the calling for all of us there. But as you notice, it's all about people. But it's not just about converts. Barnabas Piper in his book, Belong, says this. When we read growth, we almost inevitably think of size and numbers. But that is not the way growth is being depicted here. Growth then should be de depicted, defined, sorry, as an increase of the reality and presence of God in our midst. Well, I'm just going to read that again for my own benefit. <laughs> Growth should be defined as an increase of the reality and presence of God in our midst. As we seek to make eternal investments, we want to help people to grow deeper in, into a deeper understanding of God, have a deeper experience of his presence, and have a deeper relationship with him. That's a wise investment. That's a wise investment that will have a lasting impact. As we seek to invest in eternity, and to uh, work towards making true disciples, it will have an impact on our lives for sure. There will be implications for your own life. Here are a few of them. What do you do with your time? Can you give more time? What about when it's not convenient? Because often it's not. <laughs> it's going to impact your money, your wallet. Can you give more? What things can you do without? It's going to affect where you give your money. For some, it's going to challenge your attitudes towards people, right? those people you don't like. You know, maybe you need to broaden your heart and capacity for serving. God may ask you to work with people that you find difficult, and he often does. And the staff team, I apologize for being difficult. <laughs> but it will change a lot of things. It might change our careers. It will change our relationships. It, you know, as we, as we uh, seek to invest in eternity, it just shifts our priorities completely and it impacts all that we do. 
This has implications collectively for our church ministries and programs as well. Are we creating a space where people pursue Christ together? Is there an increase of the reality and presence of God in our midst, like Piper says? Let's let's continue to strive so that we don't become self-focused (laughs) navel-gazers. Instead, we must develop a keen awareness as we navigate a hurting world, discerning how we can best offer the gospel of hope to those that we come across. Let's pray that we would have eyes to see the despair in the world around us and the courage to respond in love. I think that John Piper in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, that's right, you get two Pipers for the price of one today, right? But he provides a great challenge that mature believers are excited to take up. You can read this with me. But whatever you do, find the God-centered, Christ-exalting, Bible-saturated passion of your life and find your way to say it and to live it and to die for it. And if you will, and, if, and, if, and you will make a difference that lasts, you will not waste your life. This is how we set priorities and build with things that line up with our own giftings and on the foundation of Christ. As we come to the end of the passage, Paul returns to where he started. He had referred to their behavior as being merely human at the beginning. And now he, re- he goes back and tries to remind them of who they truly are. And so on my final point, which will also serve as my conclusion, let's, uh, let's look at verses 16 and 17. And the final point is this. A mature Christian understands themselves as a temple of the Holy Spirit. In verse 16, he says this, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Paul is basically asking the Corinthians, Don't you remember who you are? Their behavior tells them that they don't, and that's why he needs to remind them. The Greek word for temple here you know, carries a meaning similar to that of the Holy of Holies, where God's presence resided. He's reminding them that the truth of God resides in them. The Spirit resides in them. God had placed his spirit in them and doing so had declared them to be holy. Then in verse 17, Paul illustrates the importance of the church. He says this, If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Paul is just trying to convey the significance, the utter importance of the church. A lot is at stake here. So he's challenging the Corinthians to think of themselves in a more serious light. He wants them to take things more seriously. The fact that the Christian heart is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit should prompt a believer to earnestly consider the call to follow Christ and to represent him to the world around. When Paul suggested that Corinthians were acting like mere humans, he was trying to point them to their new identity. They had been saved for something far greater, and we have too. But we must continually grow into it. We need to mature into that truth. Understanding who we are makes a huge difference. Not only are we created in God's image, but we are indwelt by His Holy Spirit. We are individually and collectively a temple of the Holy Spirit. This is weighty stuff. Let's take time to consider that. And this is why maturity matters. God wants us to reflect His character everywhere we go. We need to make sure that our lives line up with the foundation of Christ. That is who we are, and so we should strive to be holy as He is holy. I love how Kevin DeYoung puts it here. Holiness is not ultimately about living up to a moral standard. 
It's about living in Christ and living out our real, vital union with him. Pursuing holiness sounds a whole lot like becoming mature, humbly recognizing our sinfulness and our shortcomings, leaning on the foundation of Christ, living out our union with him by prioritizing the way that we spend our time and our resources. Our maturity matters. We are a reflection of God's love. We are ambassadors of his love to the world. This is our chief aim. No matter what it might be said of any one of us individually, we all share that. We need to represent him well and so that he is glorified. That's real maturity. As a side benefit, we have positive impact on those around us, and we will have joy-filled and meaningful lives too. So I don't know where you guys are at in your faith walk today, but I can say this one thing confidently. There's always room to grow. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, may we be a people here at Harvest who strive to follow you wholeheartedly. Lord, may we seek to grow every day in your word. Lord, humbly make you the foundation of our lives. Lord, may we build with eternal things in mind, things that don't perish. May we not forget that we are the temple of your Holy Spirit. Lord, Lord, as we pursue holiness, Lord, may we be transformed to be more like Christ. And may that impact our relationships, Lord. May it have a positive impact on our marriages, in our families, in our church relationships, in the community around. Lord, may, every, may they all see Christ in us. Lord, as we grow, may our lives be a testimony of your redeeming grace, Lord. Lord, may you be glorified in all we do today. Amen.